there's a handful of us here who are uh, presently on the list for jury duty. I don't know how this happens. Every time I get called for jury duty, there are other members of my church congregation who are on the list at the same time. It's just weird. It's like they, there's a conspiracy. I haven't been called yet, but I have to. we all have to phone in every Friday and see if we've got something coming up the next week. And uh, so I'm anticipating that. Eventually arriving, I'm going to have to go and uh, may, maybe perhaps be selected and uh, serve my time a, as a jurist. And, you know, jury duty is one of those things. You know, I don't, I don't mind jury duty, um, but there's always a certain amount of inconvenience. You know, it comes up, and you're like, this is a lousy time for this. And then you think about it and go, well, <laughs> any time is a lousy time for this because it's a kind of a burden on the schedule and, and you have to make your plans around this need that the, the uh, municipalities have of us. Um, but in general, we believe in the process. We believe, uh, certainly, if we were ever in a situation where we had to go to court for something, we want the full process at our disposal. We, we want uh, we want to be tried by a jury of our peers. We've, we've learned that this is the best hope that we have for achieving justice. We also recognize that it doesn't always quite work out that way. So, Imperfect though it may be, our, our justice process, our jury process, is an attempt at arriving at the truth. And the truth comes in the form of facts and evidence and the testimony of certain witnesses. And ideally, all of all of the above will be unbiased. Evidence, the facts, and the witnesses will all be unbiased in their presentation. And the people hearing the facts, the evidence, and the testimony of witnesses will be unbiased in their hearing. We want unbiased hearers. This is how we arrive, presumably, at the truth of the situation. And so each witness is called, has to swear before the court that they will what? Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now why is that? Well, because presumably when they weren't swearing in, they were telling lies, half-truths, and embellishing the truth. Because this is what we're accustomed to. This is what we're used to. It is very difficult to just hear the truth on any given day. The truth is somewhere in the mix. People are telling us, as we watch our televisions, we watch advertisements, we watch the nightly news, for instance, people are telling us some version of the truth, but it is a version. It is not simply the truth. It is not the whole truth, and it is not nothing but the truth. There is enough truth in it to make us believe it, to make us perceive that it might be truthful. 
But the reality is we're constantly being exposed to bias. We're constantly being given a version of events based on what people want us to believe. That's an important thing for us to recognize because justice is wholly dependent on the truth. Now, I'm not sure how much difference it makes that we swear that in this instance, as opposed to my normal behavior, I swear that this time I'll be telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because if I'm already inclined to tell untruths or half-truths or to embellish the truth, uh, what difference does it make if I swear about it? If I'm already a liar, <laughs> I'll just lie some more. See, we, this, is, this is the challenge. We are pursuing justice in our court systems, but we all recognize that our court system is flawed by the imperfection of the people, the people who function within that system, the people who serve as witnesses in that system. We all sort of bring our biases and assumptions to the table. But we have to somehow get at the truth because justice is dependent upon it. But justice is also dependent upon something that we have all come to dread, and that is judgment itself. We don't like the idea of judgment. We don't like to talk about judgment. We don't like to be accused of judgment. I was, uh, I was at youth group Wednesday night came in for, for a slice of pizza and sitting with some of the kids. And one of the kids immediately, uh, here I am thinking about all this, thinking through my lesson. One of the kids is talking to his friends and says, now don't judge me. And then goes on, you know, fill in the blank. Don't judge me has become so ubiquitous in our culture that it's, it's a joke. Don't judge me, but now I'm going to tell you the most outrageous thing I can think of to say or I'm going to do or have, have an appearance uh, that challenges you to judge me, and I'm going to tell you, don't, don't judge me. It's, 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 it's kind of a joke. It's like a, an online meme or something. We hate judgment. We're terrified of judgment. And our culture has really embraced this passage from Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. Do not judge or you too will be judged. In the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I am fascinated by the fact that people in our culture who really don't seem to know any Bible at all can quote this particular verse. Judge not. Judge not. And we have uh, not only a familiarity with it, but a very skewed sort of familiarity, based on our anxiety. Don't you judge me. That's what we think it means, that it is always wrong to judge. But is that what Jesus is really saying here? We have to uh, recognize, first off, that language matters. Language matters. In recent years, in our culture, when the facts don't match the story that you're trying to tell, you just change the facts. 
And very often how that works is you simply change the definition of the word that you're using. So some of you uh, probably saw this interview that took place a couple of weeks ago where a, a, a gender activist was asked to define what a woman is. And this gentleman said, I can't do that because it means something different to everybody. I'm watching this, and I'm sort of screaming at my screen, that's not how language works. If it means something different to everybody, that's not language. That's, that, it's, that's not how it works. In order for us to have any sort of common ground, common understanding, for us to be able to talk about what is, we have to have a common language. And this is why we have dictionaries, so that we can define words all the same way, so that we can all understand what it is that we're talking about. But we've kind of reached a point in our sort of relativistic culture where if the definition is getting in the way of me believing the truth that I want to believe, rather than being challenged by the definition, I'll simply change the definition. But language matters. Now, I want to uh, admit to you something, that this also happens in the church. It's not just a cultural thing. You will hear me, from time to time, do word studies. We'll, we'll talk about the meaning of a word as it was originally written in the Greek or the Hebrew or Aramaic. And you'll hear me talk about the context. We're going to talk a little bit about context this morning. Those word studies and those context studies are meant to help us have a broader understanding of the text, to get a deeper sense of what it meant to the first people who heard those words. But there are also people who use that same process in a, almost a mocking kind of way to redefine words in Scripture so that Scripture no longer says what it says. We actually sort of begin to redefine words so that they do not at all fit the context of the rest of the passage. And I think that's probably what has happened with judgment here. Is that we're using a definition of judgment that comes from the culture and that gives us a real misunderstanding about what this passage actually means. And I think the definition that we're using for judgment is never take a critical view of anything. In other words, when we say judge not, saying don't exercise any judgment at all. This doesn't actually fit the context of what Jesus is saying, but it also doesn't even make logical sense. And here's why. You are presently making judgments. You are in this moment deciding whether or not you want to listen to the rest of this sermon or maybe if you want to take a cat nap. You're making a determination. That's not wrong. You are evaluating the circumstances. You're evaluating the legitimacy of what I have to say. You are deciding whether or not something is good and worthy of your time. That is a judgment. You are making those 100% of the time. We are all actively engaged in the process of judging whether things are good 
whether they're healthy, whether they're uh, interesting, whether they're appropriate, whether they're righteous. That's not wrong. If you weren't doing that, you would not be exercising good judgment. And there is such a thing. Culture advocates, essentially right now, a large section of our culture advocates tolerance for everything except for intolerance. And the way that this works, this is why when we have a conflict in culture today, we've sort of lost the ability to simply be on different sides of a particular issue. If you, I, I was in forensics as a student, and uh, we'd go to these competitions, and one of, the, one of the things you'd have to do in debate is you'd have to be able to debate both sides of the same issue. That was one of the challenges, is you had to learn the arguments of both sides and be able to present them, because the argument itself is not the point. It's your ability to make the argument. So why would, why would we want to do that? Well, because that's a useful skill in a republic, in a culture such as ours, with a government system such as ours, being able to simply make a case and present it intelligently and understand that there's also another side to this case that could also be presented intelligently before we even consider what's right or wrong. We no longer have this sort of conflict as a norm in our culture because we have reached a point where the only conflicts that we're allowed to have, the only things that we're allowed to uh, be upset with one another about is intolerance. And so, if you find yourself on the opposite side of a conflict with somebody, they immediately go to calling names, and those names are all about intolerance. So, no longer are we agreeing to disagree. You are a racist, a bigot, a fascist, a conspiracy theorist, an insurrectionist, or a terrorist. There is no middle ground. If you don't agree with me, then you are intolerant. And now I have all license to not tolerate you anymore. When the truth is relative, the only allowable intolerance is intolerance. And the highest possible value, the only thing that we could preach is coexistence. And is that really what Jesus advocates here? The problem with that assumption is it doesn't fit the context of the passage. The context of the passage is Jesus is talking about a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. And he's going to go on, incidentally, to talk about all of the ways in which we as disciples need to exercise good judgment. Truth and righteousness matter. But for some people, simply speaking the truth or acknowledging that there is righteousness is itself an act of judgmentalism. 
Jesus is addressing a very certain assumption of superiority. The right to look down on others and to sort them into classes. To make those distinctions about them. And here, here he, gets, he gets into the meat of it. In verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? One of the great uh, word pictures that Jesus gives us. There's a speck of dust in your brother's eye, and you've got like this two-by-four in yours. But you're going to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What are we talking about? What kind of judgment are we talking about? Well, healthy judgment is humble judgment. First thing, we need to understand that healthy judgment actually exists. That it is good to exercise good, healthy judgment. But we have to have some perspective. We have to, uh, for starters, acknowledge that we ourselves are sinners. And so that we cannot come into this relationship with another person from the attitude of, I am superior to you, I am more righteous than you. Note that the, the passage never says, don't remove the speck from your brother's eye. It says you need to deal with what's in your eye first, and then you'll be able to deal with the speck in your brother's eye. In other words, healthy judgment is a judgment that is exercised from a place of humility, a place of great mercy, and a place of great love. Now some people, some people probably here today, think that finding fault is their spiritual gift. There, there's a few in every congregation my spiritual gift. That's my superpower. I'll tell you something about finding fault right now. It's not hard to find fault. And do you know why? We all have them. So the only thing that we have to do in order to find fault in one another is look for them. And what we tend to do is we develop a negative impression about somebody, we get upset with them, and then we go looking for all the things that are their faults, and so we can kind of justify maintaining that negativity towards them. Well, that's, that's judgmentalism. That's that broken approach. The question is, when we recognize faults in other people, are we doing that in order to lift them up, to help them become more Christ-like? Or are we doing it to somehow elevate ourselves by keeping them lower than us? That's the difference between healthy judgment and unhealthy judgment. Jesus addresses the hypocrisy of spiritual elitism because their judgment comes without love, without mercy. It is meant to elevate them in their position, to make them feel superior to others. And much of the text of the chapter that we're looking at today is really about exercising 
healthy judgment, or if you're not comfortable with that word, you could substitute the word discernment. It's about basically being able to look at the world and make some determinations about what is right and what is wrong. Disciples, according to Jesus, must, in fact, exercise judgment. Because there are a lot of things in the world that need to be evaluated in the light of kingdom truth and kingdom righteousness. You need to be aware as you make your way through this world of what is in fact right and righteous. What is in fact the truth of God versus the lies of the world. Disciples must exercise good, healthy judgment in evaluating these things. So in, in verse 6, he says, Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And so disciples must exercise judgment with those who repeatedly reject the truth. This word picture is, is a little bit vague. Peter, uh, quoting the prophets, gives us a, a little deeper sense of what Jesus is saying. Peter says uh, that a dog returns to its vomit and a pig returns to its mud, returns to its slop. True, the truth and the righteousness of the kingdom are precious. And there are some people who will be unable, unwilling to recognize how precious they are. Uh, we, we are dog people. We always have one or more dogs. And uh, we've been fortunate. Most of our dogs have been mutts. And we've been fortunate to, uh, to have some really good mutts. Dogs that just were protective of the family and were, uh, were just good dogs, good, good personality and all that sort of thing. And for many years, we had a dog we called Jack the Dog. Jack was a Jack Russell Corgi mix. Uh, I don't know if you could replicate it ever again. Uh, he was a little, mostly white dog with eyeliner around his eyes and brown head. And he lived to a ripe old age. We had him most of the years that we were in Colorado and a few years after we moved out here. Jack the dog was our bear chasing dog, even though he was not quite a foot high. Chased bears off of the property. He was, like, he was just a good dog. But Jack the dog was also gross. We would get elk coming through the yard. If you're not familiar with elk, that's like a deer on steroids. Uh, elk are uh, about the size of a small cow with longer legs. And they would come through the yard in big herds. And they would leave prizes behind for us when they left. Jack the dog would go find these prizes, these piles of poo, and roll around in them. I'm sure that there is some evolutionary explanation for why dogs do this. I can't fathom what that would be. Jack the dog would come running into the house, his white coat suddenly looking sort of a greenish brown. And he'd be smelling like a backed up toilet. He's like, Jack, that dog, you did it again. Now, here's the thing. 
Jack the dog would immediately be dragged downstairs and put in a bathtub against his will. We would clean him off until his nice white coat come back. He looked all beautiful. But then you would have to keep him in the house or he would immediately go right back out to the same pile and roll in it again. That's the, kind, that's the metaphor that we're using here. That's the metaphor that Jesus is employing. Don't take these precious things that you have and cast them to people who are just going to reject them and go back to the nonsense, back to the brokenness. And folks, every one of you has known people who should know better, who've heard the truth, who've heard the gospel, who've heard the hope of the kingdom, and who repeatedly go back to filth. This is a hard message because it almost sounds like Jesus is challenging us to give up on people. I don't think that's the case at all. Jesus is making the case that if you continue to offer these precious things to people who don't want to or are not ready or are unable to hear them, you'll only frustrate them until they turn on you. And we are better off sometimes by turning people over to their brokenness and allowing them to experience the consequences of their choices. Folks, if you have friends who find themselves in a broken lifestyle, do not protect them from the choices they've made. Allow them to experience the consequences of that because their soul may depend upon it. It may be the only hope of returning back to truth. Repetition will be ineffective and very likely will stir up bitterness. Leaving to them to their folly may be the only hope that they have. But this requires that we exercise good judgment, that we have discernment of the situation. Where do we get that? Verse 7 and 8, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Disciples have to exercise healthy judgment in their search for truth. If righteousness requires that there is a judgment, and judgment requires that there is an objective truth, where do you find the truth? Jesus says, ask God the Father, and he'll give it to you. Seek the truth, and you will find it. Knock on his door, and he'll answer his door. He'll do this because he gives good gifts. He always gives good gifts. You come to him asking for something, you want the truth, he'll, he'll give you the truth. But sometimes we're not always sure that, that, that we want the truth. But if you go to God asking for the truth, seeking the truth, he will provide it to you. Remember when I was a kid, one year at Christmas, I wanted Legos. And I got a box of blocks on Christmas morning. They were bricks blocks. They were a, a cheaper version of Legos, a knockoff of, of Legos, bricks blocks. I wasn't a picky kid. I was very excited to have my box of blocks. But as soon as I went to play Legos with friends, 
quickly realized these blocks are not compatible. They're not the same thing. They're a knockoff. When God gives gifts, he doesn't give knockoffs. He doesn't go cheap. He goes seeking the truth. He'll give you the truth, even if it's not the truth that you thought you wanted to find. Then he goes on, he says, So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. We know this is the golden rule. It starts with so, or therefore, because of what I just told you, now let me tell you something else. So because God gives good gifts, you should treat other people the way that you want to be treated, not the way that you anticipate they're going to treat you, or not treat them first so they can't treat you, but treat them the way that you want to be treated. What do these things have in common? What's the connection between the goodness of God's gifts and the way that we treat other people? Well, I think it's this. In light of God's gifts of truth and righteousness, reflect God in your relationships with other people. Speak the truth and live in righteousness. Tell each other the truth. Because life actually depends upon it. Now, I have to tell you, I, I have a number of friends, mostly young friends, because this is kind of the direction that the culture has been going. But I have a number of friends uh, that I'm not allowed to be their friends on social media unless I endorse everything that they're doing. Unless I agree with all of their choices. And so I have a number of friends that I rarely talk to at all, in all honesty, because I can't do it. I can't tell you you're right just because you think my telling you that you're right would make you right. If you choose immoral behavior, if you make self-destructive choices, if you ask me for my input, I'm going to give you the truth and I'm going to speak in terms of the righteousness of God. But I also need to exercise that in a way that is good. Because there's a certain amount of judgment in that. And it needs to be good judgment. And good judgment means I do that from a place of humility. I do that from a place of love. I do that because I want you to be closer to Jesus Christ. And not because I think I'm better than you or superior to you in some way. In the culture today, love often means don't judge me at all. But there is no love in humoring other people in their fatal deceptions. There's often no point in trying to speak truth into the lives of people who are unwilling or unprepared to hear it. But if people ask us for truth, we have to give them truth. If you receive that as judgment, then I guess I'm judging. But let's make sure it's a healthy judgment. A judgment that recognizes that whatever truth I have, whatever righteousness I have, is God's gift to me and not of my own doing. Speaking of myself, 
Jesus turns his words towards us. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few ever find it. Disciples must exercise judgment in their own handling of the truth. Our life in kingdom depends upon it. The big question in our search for truth, in our study of scripture, is will we allow the truth to shape who we are becoming or are we trying to shape the truth to match who we already are? I want to note the context of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus has already told us that those who seek it will find it. Those who ask for it will receive it. He also says, few will find the way. Few will find it. The implication is, if, if everyone who seeks it will find it, and few will find it, few are ever actually seeking it. Everyone around us is seeking something. We're all seeking some form of redemption or validation or purpose. But a lot of people, a lot of people who come to God don't actually want God's truth they want their own version of truth, and they want God to endorse it. And there are always, always those who are prepared to sell us the version of truth that we want. Jesus goes on in, in verse 15, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from the thorn bushes or figs from the thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Disciples have to exercise healthy judgment with those who advance false truth. This is where Jesus outright instructs us to use good judgment, to watch for liars. There are always those who are willing to tell people precisely what they want to hear. Certainly in the culture, but also among the believers, there will be false prophets. And we can judge them not only by what they say, we kind of have to become fruit inspectors. We've got to check their fruit. What's the fruit of their message? What's the fruit of their life? What does it produce? Jesus says about them, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That Lord, Lord is significant because it means the people that he's talking about are people that claim to be under his authority, that claim him as Lord. As you say, many of the people who have claimed me as Lord are going to be disappointed because I'm going to say, I don't even know who you are. I don't even recognize you. Why is that? Well, because in their pursuit of the Lord, they've brought their truth to bear, and they have shaped their image of the Lord around their truth instead of letting the Lord define truth for them. The truth matters. One of the things that we have to recognize is that not everybody who speaks the name of Jesus is actually preaching Jesus. 
and not everybody who uses the vocabulary of the church or the vocabulary of Christianity is actually preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus calls us to watch out for them, to exercise good, healthy judgment in knowing which is which. It is healthy judgment to recognize deception and to speak truth. It is humble judgment to do so in the full knowledge of Christ's role in the ultimate judgment. So many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Judge not does not mean that we suspend good judgment, good discernment. It doesn't mean that we ignore truth. It doesn't mean that we pretend there's no such thing as righteous morality or sin. It requires that we consider the fruit. What it does mean is that we are in no position to sort people out for the final judgment. That's Jesus' job, not mine. It is reserved for Christ. But, despite what is popularly portrayed about Jesus, contrary to what people would like to think about Jesus, Jesus will, in fact, judge the whole world. Every last one. Judgment is inherent to kingdom justice. If the world is to be made perfect and righteous again, it has to not only be purged of the impacts of sin, it has to be purged of the sin itself that did the damage. Justice rooted in kingdom truth and kingdom righteousness requires judgment. We know this at some level, because whenever we encounter injustice in our lives, we want somebody to step in and make it fair. We want somebody to fix it and make it right. We just don't want to be the ones being judged. We don't want to be at the receiving end of it, because that's really uncomfortable. That's really scary. But we also know that Jesus' judgment is good, that it is merciful. That he judges us from a place of love. But that judgment is not without requirement. At the end of Matthew 7, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. We, we most of us have known this story all of our lives. We sing little songs about it. Wise man built his house upon the rock. What is the point of this story? The point is... What you know is not as powerful 
as what you do with what you know. Wait a minute. Sounds like you're saying we have to do stuff. And we all know that we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. We are saved by faith. But what faith is there in our ambivalence to God's righteousness? What faith is there in our ambivalence to God's truth and God's kingdom? It's like we're drowning and someone throws us a life preserver. We say, ah, I feel so much better knowing that that life preserver is there. But if you don't reach out and grab it, are you really putting your trust in it? If we don't reach out for the lifeline that Christ is throwing us, then what sort of faith is that? We're going to drown in the knowledge that a solution existed because we thought knowing it was enough? Or maybe worse yet, maybe we'll, maybe we'll get mad. We'll get mad at the person who threw us the lifeline. What, what, what are you thinking? Are you assuming that I'm drowning? Don't you judge me. See, so much of what we dismiss as judgment is the wiser people in our lives trying to show us a better way, and we reject it on the basis that we've decided it's judgment. I have learned over the years in ministry that all you have to do to make some people mad is teach the truth of Scripture. Now, bear in mind, I'm quite capable of making people mad in other ways. But all you really have to do to make some people mad is teach the truth of Scripture because it's not the truth that they want. Jesus says what we build outside of him, what we build outside of Christ, no matter how grand, no matter how beautiful, no matter how glorious, what we build outside of Christ is going to collapse when trouble comes, and trouble will come. And he also says, what we build in him, regardless of how simple, regardless of how humble it is, what we build in him stands forever. That is the promise of the kingdom. Yeah,